Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Y'all, the topic for this episode today has been a long time coming. I've been following this Choctaw author for quite a while, watching her success and loving the way she makes native ancestral and historical stories come to life. Please welcome my guest, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer. I'm thrilled that she has come to be on this show with me. And as a huge bonus today, we also later get to meet her friend, editor, and mother, Linda K. Sawyer. Halito, Sarah Elizabeth, and Linda K. Halito, Rachel, Omachukma Hoke, Sohosafoyet, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, Texas Amitali, Choctaw Hoke. I am Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer from Texas, and I am Choctaw. I'm a tribal member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and I just want to say, Yako Key, Rachel, thank you so much for having us on your podcast. Well, Ome and Yakuki to both of you. This is again, super exciting today for our listeners. If it seems like I'm geeking out, it's because I definitely am. As mentioned, I had been following Sarah Elizabeth as a writer from a couple years back. And because she had written about native stories, I wanted to share one of my ancestral stories with her. So I wrote to her about my great grandmother, Ella, also Choctaw defiantly hopping on her horse and riding through fields, seeking a few minutes away from her guardian who had bought her because of her land allotments. And I didn't think I'd hear back, you know, I'm sure this author's super busy. And to my surprise, Sarah Elizabeth quickly responded saying um, she thought the story was interesting and wanted to introduce me to Francine Locke Bray. And Francine worked with the Choctaw horses that I'd heard about many years ago, but had never really delved into. And she thought maybe together we could determine if my great grandmother's horse was a descendant of one of the few Choctaw ponies who survived the walk on the trail of tears during the removal. So we were never really able to determine a conclusion, but I was grateful for both ladies taking interest and trying to help a fellow Choctaw gal 
By the way, check out an interview I did with Francine Montbray. It's all about the Choctaw ponies and Sarah Elizabeth and I will talk more about that topic today as well, since she has a book on the subject. Okay. So Sarah Elizabeth, tell us more about your books. Well, Rachel, I was so thrilled to connect with you or really reconnect with you. I know you've been following my work. And when I saw that you were creating this podcast, I started geeking out and got very <laughs> excited. So my first book is titled Touch My Tears, Tales from the Trail of Tears. And that's actually the book that Francine has a story in from the perspective of one of the Choctaw ponies. So we're thrilled to have that. So for this collection of short stories, Choctaw authors from five U.S. states came together to present a part of their ancestors' journey, our ancestors, as a way to honor those who walk the trail for our future. And these stories not only capture a history and a culture, but the spirit, faith, and resilience of the Choctaw people. Since we created the anthology and published it in 2014, three of the authors have actually passed away and two mm -hmm. of them based their stories on ancestral stories. And I was so proud that we were able to preserve those stories in this collection. It's really become a classic and one that is, will always be near and dear to my heart. My other Trail of Tears book is Toshba's Story, and it's a continuation of the story that I did in Touch My Tears, the short story that I did, and it follows an original manuscript written by Toshba's son, James Culberson. That book, before I published it, the manuscript, I was able to send it to Beverly Bringle, who is a direct descendant of Toshba, for her to read, because it's always important to me, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but it's always important to me if there are any descendants or family that are living, that I can involve them in the project and get their input before publication. That's just absolutely critical to me. The So fast forwarding, we have the Trail of Tears uh, began in the 1830s with the signing of the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek on September 27, 1830. We moved to the Choctaw Tribune series, which takes place in the 1890s. And this is my current series still in progress. I have five books published in it. Mm -hmm. This series lets you explore the old Choctaw nation with Matthew and Ruth Ann Teller, their fictional Choctaw and brother-sister pair who own a newspaper called the Choctaw Tribune. They're in the midst of shootouts and tribal upheavals with the coming of the Dawes Commission, again in the 1890s, and these changes in Indian territory and the old Choctaw nation are threatening everything they've known and force them to decide if they're going to take a stand for truth, even in the face of death. So this is a historical fiction series. It has a Western flair and it explores racial, political, spiritual, and social issues in the old Choctaw nation and beyond there. Again, there are four books in that series, and we'll talk a little bit more about it because it contains my newest release as well. Mm -hmm. Lastly, we fast forward to the next generation, so to speak, after the Dawes commission to a warrior Choctaw code talkers of World War One. And this covers the true stories, includes all of the true men and officers, the history of what took place with the Choctaw Code Talkers of World War I. I wanted to do this book because whenever I would speak at libraries or genealogy societies or any kind of public non-native event, I would typically end with asking, has anyone heard of the Navajo Code Talkers? And every hand in the room would go up. I would then ask, has anyone heard of the Choctaw Code Talkers of World War I? and not a single hand would go right, up. Right, right. I'm on that same mission to go, wait, 
hey, you guys, there's a lot more to these stories. There's and the Choctaws were the first, right? Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm very passionate about that subject. Absolutely. And people have asked me when I first learned about the Choctaw Code Talkers and what inspired me to do their story. And I had to really think like, I don't believe there was ever a time I didn't know about mm-hmm. the Choctaw Code Talkers of World War One. It's just a part of our history and our culture. And I've always known about them. And when I started realizing people outside the Choctaw Nation didn't know about them, that's what really made me determined to capture that in a full length book. And this is the first novel that's ever been written on the Choctaw Code Talkers. Wow. And a number for people who don't know means language or words in Choctaw. So a number warrior are these language warriors who used our language to help turn the tide of World War One. And uh, so this really became an epic tale. I was able to travel to France to do research. Wow. And it was my first international trip. I was super thrilled and honored to do it. And talking about, again, descendants, I had, I was in contact with just dozens of descendants of these 19 men who were credited as Choctaw Code Talkers. And it was just such an honor to have them read the manuscript and give their endorsement and their feedback on it before it went to publication. And then the ones that I connected with after publication was just truly an honor to do. Absolutely. That was a great rundown. So folks can understand when they're looking at your website and see the Choctaw Tribune and that there's different books in that series and so on. And, you know, what I loved about your concept here and, and you and your mom working together on the research and putting out these great books is that when I've been doing research over the years, I'm just having to use my imagination. I'm having to think, Mm. okay, what was going on at that time? both politically and with the natives and with their own little communities and amongst tribes, it's really hard to try to put something together that not only have there not been books written that kind of take this historical stuff and turn it into historical fiction, but it's, it's kind of real and not real all at the same time. Mm-hmm. The premises are real and much less, there's not even good movies out there that really well, there's more now than ever, but even then I can probably count on one hand, the really historically accurate movies that are out there that kind of help paint that picture for you. So with these books, our listeners can pick up a book and really feel like you're transported back then and not have to try to imagine it. You can, you can read these books and really feel like, okay, someone's helping me guide through this, um, what that world must've looked like back then. So We'll certainly delve deeper into their messages um, within those books. And of course, later, we're going to hear from your mother, the lovely Linda Kay. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, what is your mama's role in supporting you on this crucial path that you're on to keep these native stories alive? My Choctaw ancestry comes through my mother, Linda Kay Sawyer, and she is the one who has really guided me in, guided and inspired me with her many years, decades of commitment to researching our family stories and to accuracy. (laughs) That's something that I latched onto very early on, which is why it took two years to do Enough a Warrior. And and really any of my books take so much time because we have to go to primary sources. As you said, there's not, there haven't been a lot of books, nonfiction or fiction written on these topics. So rather than going to a shelf full of books, I typically find myself going into archives with her leading the way Uh (laughs) into into these archives and reading old newspapers and original documents. So her grandfather was an original enrollee around the Mead, Oklahoma area. And his son, my papa, 
lived in Fort Worth, moved down to Fort Worth whenever his mother did. My mom, whenever she was a girl and in school, would experience prejudice from all races, white, Mm. Hispanic, black, uh, because she was Indian and people didn't know, or she was Choctaw and people didn't know, didn't realize that. So she was shunned by pretty much everyone. They thought she was, you know, mix of whatever. And so she would come home and her daddy telling him, you know, the, the hurtful things. And he would tell her to be proud, be proud you're Indian. Mm. And she said, yeah, but you don't have to go to school with me. (laughs) (laughs) Easier said than done, but he had lived it his whole life too, probably. So he did to a degree and, and he grew up, you know, largely in Oklahoma and traveling to Oklahoma and Mm. much of his family was still in Oklahoma. So he passed that heritage down to her and she passed it down to me. And whenever I get chin deep in the writing process and developing the heart and the emotion of the stories, I wouldn't say I get off the path, but sometimes I slip a little bit in my focus and in my core. And she always brings me back to that in my stories and making sure that I stay centered on, you know, what it means to keep these stories alive, to preserve them, preserve them accurately and influence people through what we believe is one of the most powerful means of influence and that's entertainment. And that's what uh, these books do. I tell people they're heavy on the fiction and heavy on the history equally. So they're entertaining, but you're getting the accurate history. I love this mother daughter partnership that allows you time to um, spend collaborating together to produce these amazing stories for readers who are interested in native history. I'd like to back up just a bit to share an overview to our listeners about you, Sarah Elizabeth, from your website. Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer is a story archaeologist. She digs up shards of past lives, hopes, and truths and pieces them together for readers today. The Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian honored her as a literary artist through their Artist Leadership Program for her work in preserving Choctaw Trail of Tears stories. A tribal member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, she writes historical fiction from her hometown in Texas, partnering with her mother, Linda K. Sawyer, and continued research for future works. So how did you get started writing and what made you interested in doing this work? That is a great question. So whenever I started writing, I was actually five years old. I wrote my first story. I had a message about kindness that I wanted to share with the world, but I was painfully shy. Someone would ring the doorbell and I would go hide in my mama's skirt. (laughs) I would never know that now. That's that's thanks to 4-H, Toastmasters, and Vacation Bible School. There you go. It'll (laughs) break you out. (laughs) It will Uh break you out. Um, So yes, that was very painfully shy. So I wrote it as a story. My mom gave me a stack of sticky notes, and I believe it was five sticky notes. She actually talked about preservation. She preserved that story. We wrote it uh, in a little book form. My brother, who was two years older than me, is two years older than me, uh, illustrated it at seven years old. And she still has that stored in our files. I would love to see that someday if I come down to Texas and say hi to you and your mama. Oh, we will pull it out. We'll pull it out. (laughs) So that's what the original inspiration, whenever I latched onto writing and I continued writing throughout my young adult years and I was homeschooled did 4-H, did tons of just community service and horses and talk about the Choctaw horses. I've been in love with horses all of my life. Oh, right. Grew up in a small town, uh, 
in East Texas, Canton, Texas. It's known as the world's largest flea market. First Monday trade days takes place every month. And we explode from a town of about 5,000 people to just tens of thousands of people. Our record was 400,000 people. We just have tons of people from all over the country, all over the world that come down to it. Um, It's not quite quite as big of an affair now, but it still explodes us every month. And uh, we usually go out of town to restaurants to go out to eat <laughs> yeah. you or go, go to Oklahoma. Else. <laughs> right. and, th- and that's Canton, Texas, the flea market there. And yes. what time of year is that usually? It takes place every single month. It's the weekend oh, before wow. the first, it's the weekend before the first Monday of the month. So you just put your finger on the calendar on the first Monday of the month and it's the weekend immediately prior to that. Of course, I probably shouldn't be helping to advertise that because that means you guys have to go <laughs> flee some, no pun intended, but flee somewhere else to go get your food during the flea market. We uh, do. Sometimes we made the, the mistake of driving through town and we're like, oh no, it's first Monday. <laughs> Uh, we do, we do travel often to Oklahoma, did that all throughout my childhood would go to the Choctaw Labor Day Festival every single year. I don't know that we ever missed it. Did the annual Choctaw Trail of Tears walk as a child. The first time as an adult was incredibly impactful and really inspired me to do the Trail of Tears stories, Touch My Tears and Toshba story. That's actually when I wrote my first Choctaw story was shortly after doing a Trail of Tears walk as an adult. Like I said, it's it's something that I've always known about my Choctaw heritage and history and always been involved with, with traveling to Oklahoma. And that's always been a special part of my life with my my mother and my papa. So when I began writing, it was just a natural continuation into that. And what really launched me into doing realizing the importance of preserving family stories was at the five tribe story conference in Muskogee, Oklahoma that we did for several years and realizing as I sat there and listened to elders share their stories, who's writing these down where, Mm. where, what's going to happen to them when these elders pass on, these stories are going to be lost forever. This piece of our, our history and our culture. And that was really the inspiration then to, to get started into writing the preservation stories. As far as writing as a full-time career and journey, in 2009, I had a bit of a breakdown (laughs) and it felt like everything in my life was just strewn on this blackboard. Everything that I was doing that I thought I was supposed to be doing that I thought others expected me to do was just all over this. And I began taking an eraser and just wiping it off one by one. And when I got to writing, I just stopped. Because I thought, what if God doesn't give this back? Because I was committed to anything he didn't put back on the board that I was going to leave behind. And I took a deep breath and wiped writing off the board and handed the chalk over to God. Nothing happened for about seven months, Mm -hmm. except that I experienced the most peace of any time in my life. And after about seven months, he brought writing back into my life in a way that I knew this was what I was supposed to do and began uh, pursuing it full-fledged. And then the the Native stories, my Choctaw heritage began coming, and I knew I wanted to preserve these stories. What a beautiful metaphor. I mean, just thinking about, you know, wiping everything away, trusting God. And and I'm sure that seven months was like, oh my gosh, hello, where's my answer? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I mean, I want to take that 
personally to myself too, even, and, and hopefully our listeners will too, to go, sometimes you just have to wipe the slate clean and, and be open to what's next and what's new. And so it sounds like God has been a driving force in your life. And I'm sure the Lord was a big help to you in what was to come next. So you then had a tremendous loss in your life in 2012. Tell us about that. In August of 2012, my daddy passed. We were very close. He had many health issues leading up to that point. So my mom and I were his caregivers throughout that. And one of the things that he always told me, he was a huge encourager in inspiring my life and encouraging me to go after my dreams, to not settle for a nine to five job that I hated. That was not my passion. That was not what God had called me to do, but make the sacrifices and put in the hard work to really live that dream. And I'm so grateful today that I am living that dream and it is a lot of hard work, Mm -hmm. but I look back to his example and his encouragement and even his vision of sitting in a cabin in on a lake somewhere fishing while I was in the cabin writing. (laughs) That was one of his dreams. And he was, he was a singer, songwriter, storyteller. He could, he could tell the stories and in any conversation he was in my dad, uh, era Crawford Sawyer, he would tell people about Jesus. Every conversation he was in started and ended there. There was, there was no question about where he stood with his faith. He was always sharing his testimony and writing that and sharing it through songs. He sounds like such a good man. And, um, you know, hopefully we're honoring his memory today by talking about him and keeping his memories alive. So thank thank you you. for, um, yeah, sharing about your daddy. He must've meant so much to you. And I know you're especially honoring him though, by writing these books, he would be so proud of you. And I'm proud of you too, as a fellow uh, Choctaw. So I'll be sure to share more about Sarah Elizabeth's journey by posting photos of her dad and, and what her world looks like and uh, sharing her website, of course, and more information on my native Choctaw Facebook page. So please like, and follow us there. Please check out Sarah Elizabeth's books. You're going to love them. So you're going to hear me say that a few times throughout. And I mean it, please go check them out. I have to admit, I feel like I've known you for a while because of following your writing career, but also because we're both Choctaw gals. We both homeschooled. Uh, we both love horses and Jesus. And uh, we grew up in sister yet rival States, Texas for you and Oklahoma for me. Don't hold it against me, but never. <laughs> sounds like you partially lived there too. So absolutely. Um, Second home. But mostly you and I, you know, we both have this unending drive to preserve native stories. And for years before I started this podcast, I literally used to lie awake at night worrying that so much oral history was just going to die away with the years. Kind of like when you said you were listening to the elders and, and here you are providing a solution to that gap. So cheers to us, Chata Ohio, our Choctaw women out there keeping these stories alive. Amen. mm -hmm, Amen to that. (laughs) So you as an author, speaker, and Choctaw storyteller, as detailed in your website, you write historical fiction about Native American characters. And I really appreciate how you point out that not all of these stories conclude in a happy ending, but there is something truly remarkable about the Choctaw spirit. Uh, I recently released an episode with the chief of the Choctaw nation, Gary Batten, where he talked about this very thing, the Choctaws, just like a lot of other tribes out there recognize these heartbreaking stories, but we also believe in growing from and finding strength in them too. 
So like you mentioned in your website, enduring hope and incredible beauty rises from the ashes. So let's delve into the details of some of these stories. First, I want to say thank you, Yako Key, to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma has been huge supporters in my work. And I do appreciate Chief Gary Batten. He actually wrote my endorsement letter for whenever I was applying to the National Museum of the American Indian Artist Leadership Program. Wow. I just greatly appreciate how much the tribe and the different departments have supported this work. With the opening of the new cultural center in Durant, which if you listeners have not been there, I highly (laughs) and strongly encourage you to visit the new cultural center. It is absolutely beautiful. We were amazed, my mom and I, whenever we went through, we still have not got to go through every display. There's just so much to see. We were amazed though, when we went through the first time to see how much of our work was actually in the culture center, not saying that it's in every display or anything like that. But especially in the Trail of Tears mm-hmm. section, there's a set of videos and my mother was interviewed for that portion and she shares some of the background of our family story and the Trail of Tears in general. It's featured on the videos. Right across from that display is a panel section with featuring Toshpa's story, not directly from my book, but from James Culberson's manuscript. Rising Fawn and the Fire Mystery, which includes pieces of that story, and from Beverly Bringle herself, who is a direct descendant of Tushba, her artwork was featured in that section. And that just brought me to tears to see that they had included this real life Trail of Tears story there. The manuscript itself that was written by James Culberson in talking about my mother's influence on my writing, she's the one who actually discovered that in the Sequoia Research Center and their online archives several, several years ago, very early on in our journey. And she told me, we have to write this story. We have to write this story. And I finally wrote a portion of it for Touch My Tears. And then I knew the entire thing needed to be told, which is why I wrote the novella Toshba Story, which is a short novel detailing his journey across the Trail of Tears as Mm -hmm. a young boy. It was so grateful to see that included in the cultural center. I haven't, I have an excerpt here. If you'd like me to share a bit of that, please do. The setup for this is it's a band of about a hundred Choctaws. They've gotten the word about removal. Many of the Choctaws have actually already removed. This is takes place in 1834. They were still back and forth on whether or not they wanted to remove. Most of them did pack up and move to short ways away to the Mississippi river at Friars point but they were still hesitant. They were still debating, do we leave? Do we not leave? And so that's where this picks up. And the majority of what we call Conchie's cry in here, his speech that he gives to them, uh, which is Toshba's father, comes from the actual manuscript that James Culberson wrote. James Culberson, if I didn't mention it, was Toshba's son. So this would have been Conchie's grandson who wrote the story around the turn of the century, 1900. More of the group straggled in throughout the day. They bemoaned their losses as evening fell. Whispers of returning to our homes were circulating when a runner stumbled into the light of the cooking fires. The young man bent over double in front of Chief Baja, gasping for breath. Fires, fires, they are burning our homes. Families, escape. He coughed. Not all. A wail sounded and a warrior stomped his foot. Vengeance. He drew his hunting knife and cut the air. Others joined him, 
the roarish escalating through the camp. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. Chief's shoulders slumped. Toshpatubi removed his coonskin cap and lowered his head, as if helpless to comfort someone mourning the passing of a life. Halby, the second chief, raised his knife with the others. Ishtaya ste stepped next to me. Chalita stood on my other side. We were all afraid. Chalita stared at her father, then gripped my arm, her fear adding to mine. She whispered to us, They will be killed. Someone must do something. Someone did. Someone stepped into the light of the cooking fires, commanding attention. He raised his arms, and suddenly I remembered a time last harvest. It was after my father had gone to a meeting, a missionary meeting, but he never spoke of it, just raised his arms as though imitating someone. Now he spoke. All listened. My kin and blood brothers, I know how you feel about what has happened to you, to us as a people. I too have felt the same and looked for comfort from this wretchedness into which we have been brought. My father's voice boomed. The great spirit gave us a good land, and it pleased our fathers to live in it for many years in peace. They loved their homes, and so did we, their children. We lived strictly according to the customs and traditions of our ancestors. They prospered, and we thought to have enjoyed the same happy lives. But no, there has come a change, and we are in much distress. I stared as my father dropped his arms, but kept the strength in his words, shoulders straight, head high. Why are we surrounded by foes and cast out of our homes? I have thought much about it, and I can see only one thing wrong. We must not have pleased the great spirit, and if we did not, in what way did we not please him? It must be in only one way, and in a way that is new to us. Some time back, beyond our old homes, I heard a man preach from a book he called Holiso Holitopa, a Bible. Pausing, my father opened the pouch that hung around his neck and drew out a small book. He swept it upward, slicing the air. Although this book was read by a white man, I believe there is something better in it than the way the white man acts. Some murmured in agreement, and others grumbled in discontent, but the group of 100 Choctaws continued listening. My father was a man who commanded respect, but I had never heard him speak on such matters in front of all of our people. He continued, This book sets the heart right. I know. It makes a new man if he be red, white, or black. Let us all take this word and change our hearts so that we forget this great wrong that has been done to us and be better men so that we do not want to kill somebody but want to help them and we may be better men than we have in this country. Maybe we need to do a good to somebody in that new country and we cannot do this if we go with a butcher knife in one hand and a musket in the other hand like we used to do. We must change our way and live for love of somebody from our hearts. Lifting his hands again, as if the missionary, my father clutched the book and called out, those who want to change, to do better, lift your hands without weapons. Stand, stand now. My father spoke with such power as if he shared a great revelation. Others sensed this too. Knives slid back into their pouches. Almost the entire assembly stood with raised hands. My father shouted to the darkened sky, the great spirit of our forefathers, who we know is Jehoa, look down in pity on us today. We have been a hard, cruel, revengeful race of men. 
We thought this was right. But today, we want to do different. Help us to forget these hard ways and live better lives. We are in much trouble now, but we don't want to kill or destroy. So give us hearts that we hear about in this book, and let us be good. And if we live to see this new country to which we travel, help some of us to do good to those we meet. Perhaps we will not bring shame upon the land. My father dropped his arms and closed his eyes, as if his words, this speech, had taken a toll. Many in the crowd began to talk quietly, but they left him alone out of respect. I looked up to meet his eyes as my father approached. He offered the book and the leather pouch to me. Protect it as you do our seed corn. We must have both to survive. And that's from the first chapter of Toshba's story. Wow. I want more. Keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? How long next? are we doing the podcast? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and the hard part is we do know what happens next, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you were reading that, I was closing my eyes, just really trying to feel like I was there. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. This brings it all to life. But also I was thinking about how you and I know the Choctaw people pretty well. And I can see that actually being words that would have been spoken. You know, they're a good people. I mean, even today, our tribal motto is faith, family, culture, and mm-hmm. about trying to do the right thing. And that was really beautifully done. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sarah. Absolutely. You're welcome. And I thank James Culberson for writing it down. And for Toshba on his deathbed, who, whenever I, it's written in first person from Toshba's point of view, but on his deathbed, many decades later, he asked his son to write these words down if he thought they would be a benefit to mankind. And James Culberson did. Wow, really? That's like yeah. goosebumps moment. <laughs> I, I love that. It's one of, it's when you get to the end of the manuscript, that's what's there. And again, that's the manuscript that my mother had discovered in the Sequoia Research Center. So we're grateful to them for preserving it as well. And then we wanted to bring it out of the archives so that the general public could learn from these, this history. Beautiful. Wow. I'm so glad that you've taken time to do that. And all your research has paid off for sure. So, you know, we can hear these stories. So tell us more about some of the books you have in your shop on the website. Absolutely. So the seven books that I talked about earlier, I call those my Choctaw heritage books. And those are the ones that take eons of research oh, I got. <laughs> uh, oodles of it and typically take a long time to produce I have started a new series called the Doc Beck series it's a western and it features an uh, Omaha Indian woman doctor set in the 1890s yes. and that seems like way out there history but it was actually inspired by Dr. Susan LaFleche who was Omaha Indian And she graduated in 1889, I believe it was. And she went back to practice on the Omaha reservation and was a force for her people. This collection, I always want to make the distinction that it's not based on her life story in in any way. It was just inspired by the fact that there was this Indian woman doctor. So that's been a fun series. It's short, it's action-packed. There's not quite as much of the history and culture, because again, these are, these are just faster letting me have that wild creativity whenever I need to just release after doing so much research in the archives, letting that out. So really I've been, been enjoying that series. It's gotten a lot of positive feedback. I will always, my primary focus will always be my Choctaw heritage books though. 
I'm working on the next two books in the Choctaw Tribune series. So I wanted to come back to Touch My Tears because again, that was my first book. The Ochaka, A Cult's Journey by Francine Lockbray, which is from a cult perspective. I was incredibly proud of her doing that because she's a nonfiction writer and she wrote her first draft very nonfiction <laughs> based yeah. on the journal of this lieutenant. And we had a discussion. She went back and she brought me this first person point of view from this Choctaw pony. Oh, and I was I like, you it. have nailed it. That's <laughs> amazing. I, I love that story. I love the illustrations in it. That was something I really wanted to give it a, an authentic Choctaw feel of having a Choctaw illustrator do pencil illustrations, not color, anything, just pencil illustrations. And we had Leslie Stahlweidner who did those illustrations for, did one illustration per story. And I love the one that she did for Ochaka of the, of the Choctaw pony. Oh, for sure. And I love that idea that it's, it's a story that comes from the Colts perspective. And, uh, you know, I actually, side note, I have a couple of homeschool mom friends and they're using this podcast in their teaching for their kids. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking they really need to also get your books. So I'm, I'm sure. Would you recommend this one as a good start for, for what age group? Do you have any recommendations for these moms as they kind of sift through your options? Absolutely. That's a great question. I know on touch my tears, I've had grandmothers reading it to their 10 year old granddaughters. These books, Touch My Tears and Toshba Story are actually in a public school system at, in Texas. Great. They, they added those to their Native American studies. So grateful for that. Most of these perspectives in, in Touch My Tears, the points of view that the stories are written from, are from children and young adults because those are actually most of the trailers to your stories mm-hmm. that we have were them passing those on to their, to their children after they were grown. There is not any content that homeschool families couldn't read to their kids in my books. The Choctaw Tribune series and a number warrior Choctaw code talkers of world war one does have some period violence at max. It would be, if I was rating it like a movie would be say PG 13. So if parents have any kind of hesitation, if they want to read that for like the war violence, the violence and war is not glorified in any way, but it is there as a realistic portrayal of the times. This, the stories in touch my tears, they are sad. You know, there are Mm -hmm. definite sad uh, tissue moments, but it always ends with that element of hope, which I think we need to have whenever we're telling a story that that is definitely the purpose of whenever I tell a story is to end with that hope to tell the the hard histories and the truth and take people through a journey of grief that ends in healing and hope. It's so again, as far as homeschool families, I was homeschooled. I definitely do recommend these books as a part of that curriculum. It's not taught in public schools by and large and that's something that we homeschoolers kind of do is we yes. cover, <laughs> cover those elements, those hist- the history and subjects that it's not always taught in public schools. And this is a definite edge on that with yeah, learning you- some true American Indian history. 
you would definitely know. And I wish we had had this when we were growing up. I would have loved these books and, and even now love them. But, and, and what's so great too, is if you homeschool moms, or even if school teachers are allowed to do something like this, or just anyone wanting to try it out, our listeners can download a free copy of touch my tears. Correct. Absolutely. They can go to my website, sarahelizabethwrites.com. There's a red ribbon at the top says, get a free ebook. You can click that and put in your email address. And that just signs you up for my readers VIP newsletter that you're free to unsubscribe from at any time, but you'll get a free copy of touch my tears. Uh, Again, that website is sarahelizabethwrites.com. And that's Sarah with an H Elizabeth with an S not a Z. Mm-hmm. writes w-r-i-t-e-s.com perfect that's great and i do love your newsletter as well it's it's not every single day it's the perfect mm-hmm. amount of time spread out between them and then i noticed you had a birthday the other day so happy birthday thank you oh, it was fabulous <laughs> good i hope you celebrated or what would you do for your birthday we celebrated all weekend, had a birthday weekend. I started yes. off with a massage, a Ooh. very uh, good friend of mine did, uh, did my massage and we had dinner with friends and family. And then the next time we just had a giggle girl movie night with way too many desserts and <laughs> pride and prejudice and just yeah. laugh, the, laugh the evening away. <laughs> Could that be more perfect? <laughs> Like every girl's dream. Just leave me alone to give me a massage. Let me watch my shows. That sounds perfect. I'm glad you had a great day. You deserve it. You work hard and you're giving back by doing the things that you're doing. I truly believe that. I definitely wanted to read an excerpt from touch my tears, which is a, again, a collection of stories from the trail of tears. As most know, natives were removed from their homes in what was called the removal and were forced to make a new home in Indian territory, now Oklahoma. And that this particular story from the book is rising fawn and the fire mystery. At this point, the family's at home anxiously anticipating the arrival of their father, who has joined the tribal meeting to find out whether their community would be removed to Indian territory. I mean, even when I just think about that subject, it's like, wow, just think about that. They, they had heard that this might happen and, and then they had to wait to find out if it really was going to. So he comes home to say the following chief Baja says, our band will number almost a hundred. We will wait until the river goes down before we leave below Friars point where Mulberry Island breaks the stream. The current is less swift. He has crossed safely there many times. The government will not keep its promise to send boats and wagons, so we will have to build rafts and canoes. During the moon of wind, we will cross. After that, we will walk. How long is the journey? 400 miles. Silence again. No one looked at grandmother. Such a distance was beyond her strength. She would surely die along the trail. So the family then filters through multiple emotions, fear, worry, angry, and skipping ahead a bit, we hear from the grandmother. In a voice like bare branches rubbing in the wind, the grandmother spoke. When white people first came to our country, we were many and they were few. They needed us. Now we are few and they are many. They want our land. If we fight, there will be death on both sides. And in the end, we will still have to go. I can't even imagine being responsible for trying to transport the elderly and the young, the very young and the sick, like 400 miles into the complete unknown. Of course, they did all this in winter because they had gotten delayed. And so listeners, seriously, 
This stuff is at times heavy, at times joyful. Just go check out these books and encourage your children to as well. Rachel, thank you for reading that. I love how you portrayed that scene. That was actually written by Mary Lou Awiakta in Memphis, Tennessee. She is a Cherokee elder. I connected with her whenever I was researching Toshba's story and found she had done a children's book called Rising Fawn and the Fire Mystery, which she actually didn't like it being categorized as a children's book. And this is where coming back to about children reading the book or not, her philosophy was that native stories should be told the same way to eight-year-olds to 80-year-olds. Like she felt it was a continuation that there shouldn't be divided up into age categories. She was uh, and has been a dear friend and just a treasure in my heart to be in communication with her when we were doing Touch My Tears. She loved that her story starts the book and my story ends it. So it bookends it around this history with Toshba. And whenever I was doing the collection, she gave me the Cherokee saying of that I walked in my soul whenever I did it. And so she has been a treasure and I wanted Mm. to acknowledge her as the author of that excerpt. I just so honored to have her in the collection. Oh yeah. Thank you for doing that. And all right. Well, now I would love for the listeners to hear a little bit more about your newest book. My newest book is Sovereign Justice, Choctaw Tribune series book four. It was about four years in the making. (laughs) I ran into actually plot difficulties, not so much the history and culture on this. There's a bit of romance. There's lots of action and adventure. Most of the Choctaw Tribune series takes place in Indian territory around the Hugo Durant to Tushkahoma, McAllister, all of those places that we know in Choctaw Nation, the old Choctaw Nation. Book four primarily takes place in Washington, D.C. And I wanted to do that because Choctaws traveled often to D.C. from the beginning, even when we were in our homelands in Mississippi. So we made our, our leaders made many trips there. Delegations went there. Book four features Ruth Ann, the main character, the sister of the Choctaw Tribune series. Uh, she helps her bro- brother publish the newspaper. She goes there as a reporter, but she's also on a personal mission to help put her family back together from a revelation that's happened in book three. She's on a journey of healing and forgiveness and has all of these things continue to be thrown at her not the least of which is her heritage and what sovereignty for her people means in the face of the coming dolls commission. Mm. And she's even faced with a decision of possibly compromising that national sovereignty for her personal issue that she's dealing with. So it really explores some of those aspects of it and continues developing the characters, which the characters have become very beloved in these four book series. Uh, They are fictional, but they're based on the actual people of the times and the things that were going on. There were Indian newspapers during those days. So it released on August 24th, 2021 finally got it out. We were so grateful, <laughs> so grateful for the, the title, uh, had a different working title for it. And this one, I really feel God gave me this title for this time of sovereign justice. Mm. I'm very grateful. Uh, people can find it on any online retail outlets, or they can order a signed paperback copy of any of my books on my website, sarahlisbethwrites.com or our newest website, which features all of our art, 
choctawspirit.com. Oh yeah. And we're definitely going to talk about that in just a little bit too. I'm excited to visit about that. And, you know, you talked about the signed paperback. So I was really excited this Christmas to be able to give the females on my in-law side and the females on my immediate family side, some books from your series to be able to do a book club together. So kind of bringing both families together. And then you were kind enough to offer to do an author's meeting with us. And, um, and then you signed all the books, which is super exciting. And so I, I don't know where the idea came in out of my head, but I highly recommend it. It's a great way to bring your family together and we're not doing anything like high pressure. Oh, you have to read, you know, one chapter a week or something like that. Because for me, I basically, you know, work from the time I get up till the time I go to bed every day. Mm. And, and so I don't have that kind of time. I only have the weekends here and there to read. So we just take it easy and enjoy the book club together and I highly recommend it. It's a great gift idea to bring groups of people together or just you and your mom or you and your dad, whoever it is. So I'm definitely looking forward to reading the new book, but I'd like to get back to your own story. We talked earlier about how your father had passed in 2012 and so sorry to hear about that, but something interesting happened after that, right? Yes, it was truly the best of times and the worst of times. Two days after he passed, I received a phone call from Keevan Lewis, who was a program director, coordinator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. And he was calling to let me know that I had been accepted after two years of applying into their artist leadership program. I was thrilled and terrified, <laughs> both. <laughs> I didn't know how all of this fit together, but I did feel like it was a feather mattress that God put out to cushion the fall for me and my mother during that time that it gave us just so much joy and so much anticipation to think of going to Washington, DC yeah. for the first time. Again, Choctaw's traveling to DC. Right. <laughs> and <There you> go. <laughs> we were able to spend two weeks there doing programs, being a part of the program, doing training our main thing, though, that we scheduled and we spent months putting this together, all the time that we had putting this together before the trip to visit as many archives and museums mm. and historical records that we could. One of the highlights was going to the National Archives and seeing the original treaties, which I'm going to let my mom share more about that experience and what she was able to do there. We were Oh, we just, we went to the library of Congress. I yelled in the library of Congress. There's a blog post about that on my website. Oh, <laughs> um, really? I'm had, so curious. <laughs> we just, we just had a, a great time. Well, just don't leave your library card in your coat whenever you check it at the coat <laughs> station. <laughs> and then your mother takes the claim check and goes ahead and goes into the library and the librarian won't let you in or the, rather the security guard won't let you in. Oh. So I saw her going toward the main rotunda and I was like, mama. <laughs> And it probably echoed, echoed, echoed. Oh, yes. In the very quiet <laughs> library of Congress. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, you know how to make a mark, you know, Choctaw that's, from Texas. That's what we were doing. Uh, one of our guides, we had guides that took us around everywhere. Uh, Chris, he took us jaywalking across Independence Avenue <laughs> and we did ice skating. It was just a, a lot of fun, very heavy on the research. I did multiple presentations as well as a part of the program. After all of that, I was able to bring that research home from the NMAI program to my Choctaw community and do a writing workshop. And that's what became Touch My Tears. Most of the writers 
who were in touch, my tears gathered at that workshop. And we went through a lot of research and family stories. And I was blown away by the stories that they contributed for the collection. And it just kept growing and growing into what it is today that I'm, I'm so grateful for. Well, you must've just been salivating. It's like, here you have all these um, amazing stories from these storytellers of different age groups. And wow, I would have just been in awe. Oh, we were, (laughs) (laughs) we were absolutely were. That's, that's really exciting though, about the whole going to DC and that such an honor. I remember going to the national archives many years ago when I was still trying to figure out what research meant for what I was trying to do. And it was like, where do I start? Where do I go? I went Mm. to the Fort Worth archives. I went to um, DC and one of the, the, the only cool thing I got out of the DC archives was I asked for a book on basically the names of the people who were on the Trail of Tears, which were mostly Native American names. They hadn't transcribed them yet and, or given them the English names yet. And so I was looking Mm. through there going, I don't know what I'm looking at, but this is really interesting. And so I took nothing away from my family, but I did take away just how I was touching the same exact book that they had written on and they didn't make us wear gloves either, which I also thought was interesting. (laughs) Now you just have bare hands. (laughs) I got a paper cut from an 1802. (gasps) document and you I was dead oh my gosh that's around it so never wash that finger ever again that was Linda K by the way we probably sound <laughs> I, exactly I can't alike tell the audio. two of you apart at all <laughs> we will try to help introduce ourselves as we're switching back and forth now in the interview this is Sarah Linda K tricked. got the paper cut I did not have the privilege of getting a paper cut on my finger that was all her Linda Kay, I totally know what you're talking about though. If I had gotten a paper cut, I would have been in awe too. And so then let's see, you and I talked at one point about you published third side of the coin. What is that one? Yes, that is a collection of about 40 short stories or flash fiction stories under a thousand words. So very short, short stories. Those really shaped me as a writer in a lot of the themes that I explore now of human nature and healing and forgiveness all of those things went into those stories. There were several native stories in there as well. There's even a story of what I shared a little bit about my mother earlier about being proud that she was Indian. That's in there. I changed some names and the circumstances, but that was inspired by her journey. Those were, I had entered faithwriters.com challenge for 16 months straight every week. (laughs) That was my challenge to myself as whenever I was doing my early development as a writer. And I had so many wonderful mentors on there who helped guide me in the writing process. And so whenever I went back through and edited those, I put them together in that collection as my, my earliest works. Very nice. Love that. In 2015, I was selected for First People's Fund Artists and Business Leadership Fellow and became a part of that family. FPF continued to support my work for several years, and I'm very grateful for programs like that that support Native artists, literary artists, visual artists, and all. So greatly appreciate all the support I've gotten. For sure. We were talking about D.C. earlier. I actually just visited the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian D.C. a couple of weekends ago, and and I thought it was really interesting. I'll also post photos of that experience on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. And you know, most of the time we say Native American and American Indian, but I'd like to talk about the very controversial term 
Indian for a moment, if I may. I grew up in Anadarko, Oklahoma, and even for those natives in my hometown that I visit often, they're still saying Indian or Indian, which is N-D-N. And I'm sure there may be some that use the more socially acceptable terminology these days, you know, American Indian or Native American. And, and this is, can be a sensitive topic, I know. And I, of course, know the reasoning behind it because the whole you know, Columbus landing in America thing, thinking he was in India and calling all of the indigenous people here, Indian, you know, he made a big mistake there. So Mm. I get it. Please don't anyone write to me hating on me for still saying the word (laughs) Indian on occasion. I'm I'm very well aware of, of all the arguments. And, and I was interested to see that. I noticed you are well aware of the arguments too. You received comments from some folks who we're wondering why you use the word Indian in your books. And um, I noticed in your newsletter one time you wanted to kind of talk about that. So share a little bit more if you don't mind. That is a very interesting topic for me. It's never been an issue because like I said, with my papa and growing up around Choctaw Indians, like even our tribe, we're mostly known as the Choctaw Nation or Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma in the seventies. And before that we were known as Choctaw Indians. You find that in a lot of documentation. Mm-hmm. Whenever I was at the five tribe story conference, it was probably 2009, 2010. And one of the keynote speakers, her entire keynote pretty much was on, you know, I am an Indian stop trying to change that name. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. really caught my attention from then on. It's just never been something. It's just been a natural part of you know, whatever I'm talking or sharing the stories or putting it in the books, but I am aware the uh, politically correct terminology of Native American that's very heavy in academia. It really came from academia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's not something that came from Indian communities. We still say Indian country, Indian powwows, right. Right. all of those things. Even National Museum of the American Indian is the was right. the chosen term for that rather than Native American because that's what the tribes ultimately agreed that they wanted because that's just so deeply ingrained in our identity, even though it's incorrect, it's, it's just deeply ingrained. And what I like to tell people is the most correct way to refer to someone because people get confused. They don't want to offend anyone. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings Yes, is I tell them the most correct way is to refer to someone by their tribe. So I typically don't say I'm Indian. I say I'm Choctaw Mm -hmm. and you know, of course, some people are, are multiple tribes or whenever you're talking about our people as a whole, indigenous people as a whole, I do use indigenous often, but as, you know, as a whole, I found American Indian is the preferred term. I put that in my newsletter because I did put Omaha Indian in there whenever I was introducing the Doc Beck series. And it just got me thinking that, you know, there's probably a lot of people that were like, oh no, she just committed a big no-no using the term Indian. (laughs) Right. I can't believe Sarah Elizabeth did that. So that's why I wrote that newsletter and got such tremendous response. People were in agreement. The natives who are on my newsletter were vastly in agreement. I had people from the Choctaw language department emailing me and they're like, yeah, I asked everybody here and, you know, they prefer, you know, just Indian or American Indian or by Mm -hmm. the tribe which is, which is typically, um, it's just the most correct way is in, in respectful way is to refer to someone by their tribe. You wouldn't say it's really how you say it too. Like you wouldn't say that Indian or well, they're on Indian time, um, in a derogatory way. It's, it's really in how you say it. Um, so I find internally at events and powwows and things, it's very common to hear Indian 
Indians, whenever they get up and speak at like a college or academia, a lot of times they will slip into saying Native American because mm-hmm. that's the accepted term. And it's just so taboo to use Indian in a, in a setting like that. But that's what I found is the preference and haven't really found any contradictions to that um, outside of academia. Yeah, that's well said. And I hope what we could all remember is respect. And I think that what that's what it should all come down to. I, I recently asked one of my native guests from Oklahoma that question, what do you prefer to be called? And uh, he's actually a professor, a Native American professor over Native studies. And he said, although he feels like Indian was an incorrect name given to the people of this land, nevertheless, like you said, it stuck. And a lot of natives don't care for it to be changed. And they feel that white people came along forcing the whole Native American term onto them to be more politically correct. And that it was just one more thing, the white people were pushing on them. Those were his words. And so, mm-hmm. and of course, everybody's different. And, and I tend to say Native American a lot too, because I'm trying to find, okay, again, I'm on a podcast. What's the most politically correct term that I can use to be as respectful as possible, but I see right. Indian as just as respectful too, in, in my personal opinion. So I'm, I'm just putting it out there. So people know <laughs> laying myself wide like open is. here. <laughs> you know, another story was I posted one time on making about making Indian fry bread on my Facebook page. And a white person told me it was inappropriate for me to call it Indian fry bread. <laughs> so he was oh, no. telling me to stop calling it that. And, you know, we've been making Indian fry bread and calling it such in my family for so many years. And, and so did all the natives I grew up around and they still call it that. So, I mean, sometimes they just call it fry bread, as you know, or don't they call it Navajo fry bread or something mm-hmm. too probably originated there, but mm-hmm. times are changing and, and some say native Americans, some say Indians. And I think, again, we should just respect their decisions. If I could, I would always say Indian. That's, that's my preference, but And don't forget Indian tacos, Indian tacos. That's right. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I I'm going to actually talk about my in-laws one time. They, we made them some Indian fried bread. It was their first time to make it. And they folded it up like a taco and ate it. And I was like, Oh, I never thought about doing that. And they were like, well, you said it's a taco, right? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I was like blown away. I'd never thought about folding it. I've not seen it folded. That would be a challenge for the right? fire bread I get, or the Indian tacos I get. <laughs> With all the toppings, it's just falling Huge. off everywhere. <laughs> just mind-blowing ways to do Indian tacos. But anyway, so we're going to switch gears a bit. So you said about your mother, Linda Kay, that quote, she has walked beside me every step of the way on this journey. My bestest friend, mentor, editor, and the one who lifts me off the floor when I can't bear to think of the black hole of research I've fallen into with historical fiction. She's my first reader and hammers character issues, cultural points, and realistic portrayals while keeping me encouraged through the hard editing process. My books would not be what they are or even be in your hands without her. So Miss Linda Kay, you are the epitome of the supportive mother Uh, despite what you both went through with the loss of Sarah Elizabeth's father, you've both spent your effort and time doing great things in this world. And as you both look to preserve historical Native American stories for present and future generations, I hear you and your family have some fascinating ancestral stories of your own too. We'd love to hear more about that. 
Well, Rachel, thank you for your kind words. I am so very proud of Sarah and the work that she's done. For years, I have done this research for over 30 years. Wow. And I always wondered, God, what am I going to do with all this stuff? Right. <laughs> you know, why, why do you keep having me look at all this stuff and dig right. and dig? And of course, then we saw the fruit of it as she yeah. uh, grew older and began to take these stories and research and uh, form them into uh, the books they are today. So I'm very proud of her on that. Absolutely. And it really is brilliant. I mean, the fact that you spent all those years researching, is there, are there notebooks? Is it, have you saved it online somewhere? Where are you storing all this information? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I just picture boxes all over your house. <laughs> well, there are file cabinets. I have about five file cabinets and wow. I have lots of references online, uh, links saved and, wow. uh, some have gone off and, <laughs> wow. and no more, but I've, I've tried to do more hard copies now, uh, mm -hmm. rather than save links. But a yeah. lot of it has been through archival studies as well. We've traveled, uh, many places to archives and, and done a lot of, of research of actual documents. So because I found through my research, there was a lot of misinformation out there and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it on the internet. So I began to search out the actual documents and piece the real stories together. So that's been my journey in this is, is trying to seek out the, the actual facts. You know, that really is an interesting concept because before I started doing a lot of my own research starting 12 years ago, I've thought about before how the people have come before me who went to say Ireland and went to a church and looked up their, you know, information, paper archives or whatever there, and then brought it back. And then once ancestry.com became available, they scanned it in there. And it's like, wow, those people actually are the guerrilla warfare type mm -hmm. <laughs> people yes, that really yes. did digging. And so I take it for granted that I can go to say an ancestry.com, but I also have to remember that not all the information on there is correct. Sometimes someone's just gathered something from the internet that may or may not be correct and placed a story on there or whatever the case. So I bet you have found really interesting places to research and study, and I could pick your brain all day. Well, one of the great, uh, supports I have also is my son, Doug, who is just a genius at this research as well. He, he, uh, digs out stuff that I'm like, where did you get that? <laughs> Cause I mean, he's real good at finding actual factual documents and maps wow. and so forth. So he pulls out, uh, really, really good stuff for me as well. Um, our research has taken us, oh my goodness. Well, we've been able to go all the way back to my fifth great grandmother, Astanchi, who was there in Mississippi, what's known as Mississippi today. She was on the uh, Honey Island. Her property was there that was surrounded by the Yazoo River. Her English name, her married English name was uh, Betsy Beams. She's been mistaken with some other Betsy Beams that were there, but I actually was able to go and bring out all the documents that solidified, you know, who she really was. So wow. uh, that was really amazing. That was, and that was great to be able to pull out those documents and, and see who she was there. What part of Mississippi uh, did she uh, they were in the Oklahoma, uh, the LaFleur district. That was the uh, Western, Southwestern area 
of the okay. Choctaw Nation there. Mine were in the southeast of mm, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess my ancestors and yours probably weren't friends. They just probably never ran into each other. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're amazed as you research this, the actual connection that different people had, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I would be like, wow, how did they travel so far and keep connected the way they did? But yeah. they, they did. Wow. And so what was her Indian name again? Estanchi. Estanchi. Do you know mm-hmm. what that means? By any chance? I do not. I I've have someone at the, the language department working on it for me. Okay. So to wow. see what, what uh, that would be translated into, but yeah. So yeah. I was really, uh, that just really excited me to actually find out what her, because I knew she was a beams and then I, you know, Betsy beams, widow beams. And then when I actually found out what in a, a court document, what her Choctaw name was, you know, yeah. that was oh, totally really amazing. <laughs> Most people never figured that out. A lot of people can't even, I, I've got a huge gap that goes from, I know my relatives came from Mississippi. I think I know of three of them, but I can't, I can't figure out what their native names were. And I can't figure out when they came over. And so there's this gap that I have that drives right. me nuts. I'm just so blessed with the documentation of our family. Uh, that we've been able to trace so much of our history and find the names, you know, in the muster rolls, find the names in the Armstrong rolls and find the names in court documents, their claims that they made on their land and coordinates of their land and et cetera, et cetera. It's just been amazing how we've been able to dig all that out. Oh yeah. And have you gone to Mississippi to do some of this research? Yes, we have. We've gone to Mississippi, uh, DC, Oklahoma, Arkansas, <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> just every, yeah, everywhere. And do you know any of their stories from, you know, coming over during the removal? Well, uh, Ezekiel and Elsie Roebuck, that was a staunch, she's one of her daughters, Elsie. And so Ezekiel was a white man and uh, he was her son-in-law. He was considered himself an intermarried Choctaw. Mm-hmm. He was raising his family's Choctaw, uh, his children. And uh, when it came to the removal, uh, he had the choice of staying there as a white man with 640 acres or leaving with those who wanted to uh, maintain the sovereignty of the Choctaw Nation. And he left and went on the Trail of Tears with his family. And he died on the Trail of Tears. No. Uh, But uh, how did you find that out, by the way? And I'm partly asking for myself, but also for our listeners who I know are doing some research too. Right. Um, well, I went back into census and other documents during that time. And that's where I found out him on a white man's uh, census there. When they did a census before the removal, uh, the white, they, they did a census of just the white people. And he was on that. And wow. then I found some other documentation, some affidavits from Armstrong himself saying he was a white man. And then in court, documents where Elsie was in for her claim for their land that he was a white man. So Hmm. that's how I was able to document, you know, who he was. And then in his death, uh, he was on the Armstrong rolls when they left and he was not on the muster rolls when they arrived there and family stories had said that he died on the trail. Well, that documented that he actually did because he did leave and then he did not arrive. Wow. Well, and he must have really loved her because 
you know, we know all these stories of uh, white folks marrying some of the natives so that they could get their land. Well, he left 640 acres to come to 160 acres <laughs> in a pretty terrible ordeal trying to get there. So he left with his family. Mm-hmm. And well, and I think he's uh, just by looking at some of the other stuff he did, I think he really did look at the Choctaw people as his people. He mm-hmm. petitioned for education for their children and joining with other full bloods, you know, mm-hmm. and petitioning for education. I found that document. Wow. Uh, where he's on, on there as yeah. one of the signers. So I think that he saw, he really married into the tribe and mm-hmm. took on the, the Choctaw culture and and yeah. uh, his family so she's widowed and comes mm-hmm. over do you know if they had kids they brought they, over yes yes they did oh, and man. their oldest son uh, William Roebuck uh, was chosen to be one of the young men to be sent to the Choctaw Academy to be groomed as a leader a future leader of the Choctaw mm-hmm. Nation and later on he did serve in many aspects he served the Choctaw Nation as the National Auditor as the Chief of Commissioner of Claims and a lot of other, but in particular, also, he served as a, a president of the Senate twice. Wow. And he, he was one of those that went to Washington. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he went to DC as well to speak for the Choctaw people. And can you imagine like back then you could actually list that on your resume, like came from Mississippi, uh, survived the trail of tears. Well, I didn't call it that, but survived the journey from Mississippi to Oklahoma. I represent the Choctaws the best way I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was 11 uh, when he came across the trail and his wife, Mary Ann home. I don't want to leave her out. She's an awesome person to get to do some research for her. And uh, they both came across the trail at different times, not together in different groups and uh, different years, but they were friends there in Mississippi. And then they, their friendship was reunited. Uh, later as he when he came back from the Choctaw Academy and then they married oh and they established the uh, Roebuck Ranch there at uh, South of Hugo so speaking about the Roebuck Ranch is it still a working ranch today Uh, I see cattle out on it Uh, it's not owned by Choctaws anymore Mm, okay Uh, there is a sign there of the Roebuck Lake that if you're on 271 right there at the Choctaw Casino right before it Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. there is a sign that says Roebuck Lake. No way. Points Next to time the I'm there, I'll have to, yes, to take it, a picture of that. That's mm, pretty cool. It I mean, points to the West, even though it's not in your family anymore, it sounds like it still probably gives you a little bit of pride to go, Hey, yeah, we, oh, we know absolutely. That place. I mean, we stopped there. We've been stopping there for years Wow. Oh, <laughs> as really? we travel back and yeah. forth. Yeah. My, my <laughs> family was mainly uh, from the Fort Townsend Hugo area. And then when the Dawes commission came about then they relocated over to mead uh, okay durant was close to durant okay so mead is near durant then yes gotcha and it was a huge ranch right how how many acres was it at that time it was what i've read documented is two thousand acres huge but i wonder how it grew that large was it like the kids had some or maybe they I, i guess they could have purchased some of the land well, you know, not well, just land allotments or whatever. Right. I think, I think, well, at that time it was not allotted land. It was in the, during that time, if you plowed out a boundary, then you were able to work that land and claim that land to not as ownership, you know, but yeah. then no one owned the land, but you could work that property 
And, mm. and so that's what they did. They had a grist mill, they had a, a cotton mill, they grew corn and raised cattle. So as far as, you know, your parents and grandparents and all that, did any of those speak Choctaw that you can remember? Well, not, not for me. I don't remember any of them uh, speaking Choctaw. I, I, it was so funny though, being raised, you know, in Texas, I spent summers and different holidays and stuff in Oklahoma. I spent summers with my grandparents there. Mm -hmm. And uh, later on, as I began to do this genealogy research and so forth, it was just uh, amazing at not just my family, but Choctaws in general, I would stop and I would say oh my goodness that's why I think that way or that's why I have oh habit. right <laughs> or that's why you know have that perspective because yeah, it's in your DNA uh, I, yeah I found that that's the you know was a lot of the perspective that they have and we have such a great uh, legacy of faith in our tribe and in, in my family it was uh, an extra plus for me to uh, as I was researching to discover their Christian beliefs. Uh, uh -huh. My grandfather, William, he named his firstborn son Ephraim. And there's no one I have found so far in our family, you know, many named after uncles and uh, grandfathers and stuff. He was named after his grandfather, but they were not, there was no Ephraims in our family. So I was like, well, that's curious, you know, that he would name his firstborn that. We were reading in Joseph's story uh, in Genesis and in, in the Bible, and he named, Joseph named his first son Ephraim, and it, the meaning of it means, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I just got I goosebumps that, again. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, could that be wow. why William named his firstborn Ephraim? Wow. Yeah. Oh, so. that is so appropriate, isn't it? that that was that was just and as I've researched more about them and all I I'm just uh I was like wow what a legacy and it was going to be lost mm -hmm. you know my because of the generation after the Dawes you know you don't tell people you're Indian you know even during right. the Dawes uh, my mother is also Choctaw but her family did not sign up on the Dawes because they didn't trust the government so Oh, wow. Isn't that so, funny? It's yeah. like, it's like my great grandmother, dark skin, dark, dark eyes, clearly native American, but you know, she'd wear the white gloves and try to cover as much as she could. I mean, it's, right. it's so yeah. sad, but you're also like, right. you definitely well, are it, native. <laughs> it was very, it was a very dangerous time to be Indian. So, so many did deny, you know, that they were. So during that time, I think my family then went through that and lost a lot of the history. It wasn't passed down to them. Uh, my grandfather now, <laughs> he was, he was kind of a, a rebel, I guess, because I found on a census, uh, my, my dad, Sarah spoke of her papa, my dad's dad, Willie Odell, he was on a census and all of his relatives who are Choctaw put on there, they were white. Oh my god. He goodness. was the only one that put he was Choctaw. <laughs> oh wow. So and he that, was kind of the rebel. <laughs> that's oh, I'm just gonna put it down. I am yeah, what I am. He, he put down Choctaw. So you know, it does also make it confusing when you're trying to do research. You know, yes, you're like, wait yes, a minute, they were white here yeah. and then they're you know right, right. you know, over here. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to talk to people who have done research about their family, obviously, and especially Native American 
ancestry because it is probably the hardest to find any information about. And obviously they didn't keep a lot of records back then and all that, or the native Americans didn't. And sometimes I'll be up at what I call the ancestry vortex where I'll like start, I'll just go, wait, what was that guy's name? Well, where was he from? So then I start doing some research and then next thing I know it's four o'clock in the morning and right. somewhere during that time, I might wake up my husband and be like, oh my God, he was not married. And he had like yes. 15 <laughs> girlfriends and they each had a baby by him. And, and he's like, who are you talking about? And I'm like, I need to know how important this is to me. <laughs> and he's right. always such a trooper. I feel bad for him, but is there anything you'd like to share with me? Any nuggets that you've found along the way that you're just like, somebody needs to hear this. Well, I know that like, you know, as far as our family, I've, I've shared a, a good bit of that, but, uh, when we, when I was doing the research at the Sequoia research center and came across Toshiba's story, mm-hmm. uh, that was a real nugget. You know, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is a real nugget. If anyone ever wants to go and read the whole manuscript, it is, it's a pretty awesome so uh, manuscript there. That was something that's never been digitized or put online. It sounds like you just happened to find it and thought it was, well, it's digitized now it is, is, but it wasn't before when, like, when you found it. Wow. Right. Right. And you spell that T is it T U S H P A. I'm trying to remember. Yes. Okay. S H P A. Yeah. And that's at the Sequoia research center. Yes. Um, and where is that in Oklahoma? That's in Arkansas. Actually. Oh, it's in Arkansas. Uh-huh. Okay. Cause there's also a, a boarding school that Sequoia is in there in Oklahoma, but uh, different uh, things. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But no, this is a sort Sequoia research center there in Arkansas. Okay. So interesting. And I, I heard that you might at some point be writing a book, right? Someday. Ooh, yes. Yes. Uh, it will not be fictional. Like Sarah, I don't have that as, as creative a gift as uh, weaving these stories. Mine is going to be more of the facts. Uh, it will okay. have documentation. Uh, that's, I'm a real stickler about that now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I want to, the information, but I want, I want the documentation that yeah. proves it. Gotcha. So, so that there's no confusion. So my book is, is what, you know, it's actually a family project that we're all working on and oh, we're I love going it. to uh, pull it all together and with the documentation and all and start with, I'm, I'm hoping to find uh, my great grandfather as well Estanchi's husband. I'm kind of stuck on it right now, but I'm on the trail to, mm-hmm. uh, to try to find out who he was. But what I, what we want to do is go back to the, the first Choctaw and the first immigrant mm-hmm. and come forward. And okay. so, you know, cause we have that shared history. And uh, so that's, that's what the book will have. It will have, the, oh, I love it. Uh, it from our Choctaw line from our Choctaw line, you know, go back to the, as far as we can go back with the Choctaws and as far as we can go back from the first immigrant. Nice. As far back as you can go for the Choctaws right now, how far back is that? That's a staunchy. And that's 18, um, uh, she, after no, well, 1830s, right? No, no. She's more 17. Oh, 80s. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so jealous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot yeah. trace mine back that far. <laughs> Ezekiel and Elsie go back to the uh, 1800 
first, wow. first 1800, 1805. And then Astanchi was her mother. So she goes back to the 1700s. You're about a hundred years further along than I am. Uh, this is Sarah here, Rachel. <laughs> uh, Sarah. I, just have to, I just have to jump in when she was saying about not having the creative genes. One, she's been a, she was a songwriter with my daddy. They co-wrote a lot of songs Two, this year. She wrote her first fictional short story and I am so proud of it. She did a phenomenal job. I did some editing on it. It's for a collection that Leslie and her sister Celia are doing of Choctaw women uh, publication. I believe the Choctaw nation of of Oklahoma is actually publishing it, but she, her story is being included in that. And I was super proud of her historical fiction short story that she did based on a lot of her research, but yes, she has, has had decades of research. So goes, goes really deep in there, but I just wanted to give her a shout out on the fiction. Well, Linda K, you've been being modest with us. <laughs> Congrats. Well, for it's working not published in- yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to look forward to seeing that. That's going to be exciting. Let us know when that's published because I'll definitely put it out on my Facebook page. And what a sweet thing for you to say, Sarah. I, I thought maybe she was lying to us when she said she had no, or that you were the talented one. But <laughs> Okay. So we talked earlier about the Roebuck ranch and, you know, 2000 acres and it was a working ranch and it was also an inspiration for one of Sarah Elizabeth's books, right? Yes. Uh huh. It's a, a model for uncle Preston's ranch. That's oh, in the okay. Book. So if you read the, in Choctaw- the Choctaw Tribune, okay. Which one is it in the Choctaw Tribune series? It goes throughout. Oh, okay. It's the the oh, ranch okay. is referenced throughout the series. Yeah. All right. So for our listeners, if you read in that series, that's the ranch that this story comes from is the Roebuck ranch. So much fun. I love that. Rachel, Sarah, again, yes. Roebuck ranch was the inspiration for the Choctaw Tribune series, the ranch that is in it, uncle Preston's ranch. And in Choctaw culture, the maternal uncle was a part of raising his sister's children, uh, Mm -hmm. largely even more so than the father at times. And so Uncle Preston's role throughout the series is a critical one for the main characters, Matthew and Ruth Ann, because that's their maternal uncle. And he was played a large role in raising them. So they're always looking to him for wisdom and guidance throughout the series. Very nice. So a little teasers there for everybody. Excited to read it. So, you know, both you and Sarah Elizabeth are talented. <laughs> Why don't you share about the newest art addition to the 1832 Steakhouse in Durant, Oklahoma? Again, talk about talent. I've got to say this whole family, it's, it's just kind of mind blowing. So tell us more about that, Linda Kay. Oh my goodness. I was so honored to get the email requesting those. Uh, when we went to DC, I always had my camera with me <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, all of our research, you know, I, yeah. I digitize everything I can. And then I always take opportunity to also uh, do some photography shoots. So mm-hmm. uh, I used to do oils and uh, just don't have time for that anymore. So I've adopted photography for my creative outlet on that. And so when we were in DC uh, and we had the, went to the, the vaults there where the first acts of Congress are, and they 
brought out uh, these treaties for us, I asked them, can I take a picture? <laughs> and they said, oh yeah, there you are. Take a picture. <laughs> wow. Just could, don't do a flash. Mm-hmm. And so I did not have the equipment I needed to do a real good shoot, but I did my best on my tiptoes. I didn't have a tripod to set it up on, so <laughs> right. <laughs> I was up on my tiptoes, but uh, it was just an awe moment to look at all these treaties and especially the one of Dancing Rabbit Creek. And uh, so wow. I got to get the full length of it. I took it in several shots. And so the that's there in the steakhouse there, the 1832 steakhouse oh, there at gosh. the Choctaw Resort. The, the new steakhouse and so I was so excited to have those displayed there in a private dining room uh, that they have they have the part of it where it has the signatures and uh, it's just uh, I don't know to look at all that I, I've had all these photos when we went I did over 4,000 I have four, over 5,000 images and <laughs> is yeah, that all <laughs> when we came back and I you know I've just always sat enjoyed them looking through them and stuff and one day uh, sitting on the couch my son Doug who helps me do a lot of research as well he was sitting there and he was doing some stuff on his computer and I was on mine and I was going through these photographs you know and uh, I had one uh, with Pushmataha, one of our mm-hmm. more known chiefs, uh, his signature. And I had that on, uh, it was the Treaty of 1820, I believe, Dexter, Mount Dexter Treaty. And uh, he kind of glanced over and saw that. He said, Mama, you need to share that as a print. You need to share that with other people. And I was like, yeah, I guess I am hoarding all this so stuff for smart. myself. <laughs> and I did just really never thought of that. And yeah. so uh, he was like, you really need to share that with other people. They would enjoy that so much. So that's where the prints uh, started coming in oh. uh, from the photo shoots I've done. We've been up on Blackjack Mountain when the Choctaw horses were still running wild up there. They're not there anymore, but since before then, I was able to get them in the wild and it was amazing. Uh, oh my the gosh. photo shoot that I got to do there. And so I've shared those prints as well and other, what I consider sacred or, or historically prevalent, you know, mm-hmm. um, spots that, that we've taken pictures at that, uh, I know there's a lot of history there. You just sit, stand, just looking at it, you know, you can mm-hmm. just kind of imagine the history going on. So I, I share those. We, we found a monument, uh, that had been placed by a historian on the Mountain Fork river. We were kayaking it one year and we pulled off to dump our yaks and take a break. And we looked over and there's this monument and we're like, what's that? And we walked over and it says Choctaw trail of tears crossing and uh, so we got with the historian and got the story about it and that actually would have been where my family would have crossed oh uh, into indian territory uh, from the trail and so that was really (laughs) a a tingling moment uh, to get that shot so uh, he actually i I took a picture with my with my phone when we were on the river, but he actually took us back down in his four wheel drive to allow me to do a photo shoot of it. So I got to do a photo shoot of it and, and uh, share that with people as well. That's great. So the prints, you know, that's, that's uh, where that came from was just starting to share all the, all the the moments that uh, have inspired us. 
and the jewelry, I do jewelry design. I, I have always wanted to create jewelry for Sarah and I that to honor our ancestors and that would represent their stories. And so I started designing different uh, patterns and stuff to create us necklaces and then cousins and different ones. I want one. I want one. Mm -hmm. So I uh, took and did little excerpts of stories uh, on a card. So each of my necklaces have the story that goes, have a little excerpt of the story that goes with, with that necklace that. Oh, that's so neat. So describe one of those necklaces, give us Uh, a picture of what that looks like. Okay. Well, uh, I have, I do chokers. Uh, And they uh, will have the bead pattern on it and the colors that I chose for that particular story. And then I finish them with turtle tip beads. And then I use a magnetic clasp on them. Mm -hmm. And then on the beads, I do rope necklaces too. And I use the glass beads on those. And I use that pattern on that. And then I have a little logo bead that the Choctaw Spirit, we have, we've used that for years. We started a blog back in 2009. And it was called Choctaw Spirit. So we've used that term for many, many years. So uh, I also made a, a, a logo bead that has a CS on it for Choctaw Spirit. And that's on the rope beaded excellences. And you're, I mean, now you're starting to sell these, right? So there was so much demand. They're yes. like, fine, I've got to start selling them though, because I'm spending so <laughs> well, much like time said, on them. My cousins and whatnot were wanting them and different ones. So yeah. uh, friends and so forth would see them and they'd, oh, I want one of those. So uh, Sarah was wanting me to share what's on one of the story cards. One of them is uh, the Paisley Shaw. It's called the Paisley Shaw. And the story behind it is where Elsie is crossing the last river on the trail before they get to Indian territory. Mm -hmm. And she, it is said in family stories that she wrapped her baby girl. Uh, She had her two sons and her baby girl. And I understand in my documentation, there was a fourth child, but I've not been able to identify them, but Mm. In the story, in the family story, she has both her sons, William and Benjamin, and then her baby girl, Anna, and she ties Anna to her back with a Paisley shawl that she brought with her. And so the necklace is called the Paisley shawl, and it has a little excerpt about them crossing the river. Oh my gosh. I love that. God, you guys, man. So many goosebump moments today. That's a great idea. I love that. And so where can we find these treasures? Well, we are developing a new website and it should be out pretty soon. And it's ChoctawSpirit.com. We've always used that to uh, identify our work that we do. And it really encompasses what our work is. So we wow. have always used that. So we went ahead and, and decided to uh, use that for our website as well. So about when do you think that should come out and no pressure or anything? I mean, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate, but when do you think by the time this podcast All is, right. is released? <laughs> so y'all go check out choctawspirit.com. That's C-H-O-C-T-A-W spirit.com. And I'm well, definitely going to go on there. Awesome. So thank you for sharing the fascinating stories about your family. And I know our listeners will love hearing about it and checking out the jewelry and the artwork and, and the books. And my final question that I like to ask my guests, what words of wisdom would you like to share 
with the world today, Linda Kay? I would say with all my research that I've done and found the legacy that our ancestors left for us is to carry on the faith that they had and carry it on into our future. That's beautiful. I think that would really honor them and it will sustain us as it has over the years. Amen. Thank you for that. And how about you, Sarah Elizabeth, you've been through some challenges in your life and you've also accomplished so much. What words of wisdom do you have for myself and our listeners? Well, thank you for that, Rachel, with my birthday, just flying by me yesterday, (laughs) I was contemplating the life scripture verse that my parents gave me whenever I was 16 and carved it on a pin case that I keep by my desk. And it's from Proverbs three, three through six, let not mercy and truth forsake you, find them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. That's perfect. Great for all of us to hear. And I hope my listeners will um, take some comfort in that as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You once said that you asked some Choctaw people, what do they want people to know? And what did they say? They want people to know that we're still here. What a statement. And perhaps that's our native community's words for our listeners. We're still here. Yakoki, Linda Kay, and Sarah Elizabeth for being here with me today and for all you do to preserve the stories of our Choctaw people, those who have come before us and those who are still here. I'll see you again soon. Chipisalachiki. Ome, thank you for having us, Rachel. Ome, thank you. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Choctaw. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.